John 6, we've already seen the first, well, not the first miracle, but the first one in that chapter, the feeding of the 5,000, and that's going to um, really be explored a little bit more in our text today. We also saw that Jesus walking on water. Um, so let's go to verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten, and bread after eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not sorry, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them food from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Let's pray. Father, <coughs> break open the bread of life to us as Christ broke the loaves beside the sea. Open the sacred page through which we seek you as we long for the living word. Bless the truth to us as you bless the bread by Galilee, so that our bondage ceases, our fetters fall, and that we may find peace in you by your all-sufficient grace. In Christ's name, amen. Wes Welker is the former wide receiver for the Patriots. Now, I say that because you must understand that all roads lead to New England, and, and the other team shall not be named in this building. Um, nor shall their quarterback be named. So remember that, Ken. <laughs> anyway, uh, we can say Denver, it's all right. But Wes, Wes is in trouble because Wes has had three concussions in the last 10 months. That's one of the hardships of football, is your brain gets damaged. Not a good thing. Wes Welker is uh, seeking to come back and continue his football career, and Though, you know, there are many people who are starting to question, should West just hang up the cleats? 
What's he working for? Why is he continuing to subject his body to the punishment that a football player endures? Particularly a wide receiver who often catches the ball at a, a very vulnerable moment when anywhere from one to three men who are rather large are running at him and colliding with him, throwing him on the ground. Doesn't sound like a good plan to me <laughs> for longevity. So it's not just the aches it's the, and the pains and everything else. He's risking his future life. He's risking his ability to concentrate and to think because of brain injury. He's risking what many men have experienced with this brain damage, uh, the depression, the rage, everything else. And so for a little more money, because he's made plenty of money, and the opportunity to win a Super Bowl, which has eluded him thus far, he's putting his health at risk and therefore his future life at risk. Now, we all work for something. He's working for money and glory. But we work for things like that, too, that can perish. Things that won't last, things that will not sustain us in the days to come. That's part of what Jesus is getting at in this particular discourse that we find. The big idea this morning is that Jesus gives eternal life to those who believe. Such a simple phrase and yet there's a lot that's going on within this passage. Let us remember not just, well, let us remember that the feeding of the 5,000 is found in all four Gospels. The walking on water is, is found not only here in John, but also in Matthew and uh, Mark. But the discourse that follows here is only found in John's Gospel. The other Gospels bring you to a different place, a different subject, but... For some reason, John thought this was so very important, and so he stays with this discourse. The first part of this is that the Son of Man gives eternal life. The crowd comes. John notes that in the morning they recognize the fact that when the boat left and there was only one boat, Jesus wasn't in the boat, but they can't find Jesus. And so they go looking and they find him in Capernaum. And they ask that question. When did you get here? They're curious. And Jesus does not answer their question. He says, basically he's saying, this is not what matters. When I got here, how I got here, not really the point. And so he introduces this discourse with those words that we were focusing on previously in uh, chapter 4. Where's it? 5? I lost track. Truly, Truly, or amen, amen. He's indicating, of course, that something very important is about to be said, and they needed to apply their attention to what he's about to say. And we need to apply our attention to what he is about to say as well. And what he says initially is not encouraging. It's a bit of rebuke to them. You are seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Not because you saw the sign. Now, they experience the sign. They experience the benefits of the sign. Part of the sign was the, the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. They ate of these, these loaves. They ate of these fishes, but they missed the point. And so Jesus is not saying they weren't there. What Jesus is saying is, is you did not recognize that to which the sign pointed. They saw the sign. 
but they missed what it meant. I was talking with someone about entering Texas. When you come in on I-10 from uh, Louisiana, there's that humongous sign if you've ever driven there. And it tells you how far it is to various places in Texas. And of course, the discouraging news when we were, were there was that El Paso was 893 miles away. <laughs> and we're going to drive every single mile of that, I tell you. But there's also all of the stuff, the speed limit information. And of course, you're driving by at 65 miles an hour going, oh, what was all that I needed to know? Too bad. Okay? They missed it. Not because it happened so fast, but as we will see, because of the hardness of their hearts. The sign pointed them to Jesus as a divine deliverer, but they wanted him for his benefits. They didn't want him. They wanted full bellies. It wasn't so much about having him. Jesus says they worked or expended themselves. They're fixated on food that perishes or could be translated spoils it's not going to come to what you think it would come to it may sustain you for a little while ugly steak for those of you who know is oh so delicious but you know what the next day you still need more food it perishes it spoils it does not sustain you the rest of your days it comes to an end and what G, part of what Jesus is getting at is that you're focused on the wrong things. You're focused on the things that are going to fade, that are going to perish, that are going to spoil, that are going to go away. It's not the only place he says this. Matthew 6, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns them, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. And last night I had a dream that someone broke into my office and stole my computer. I can't live for my computer. Okay. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Similarly, in, in Matthew 13, in the, as he explains the parable of the sower, he mentions this. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And so Jesus warns in many places, including this one, about the cares of the world that can distract us so that the gospel, while we hear it, does not get root in our hearts and transform us and make us fruitful. Because all of our concern for the world and its things, chokes it like a weed chokes a plant, stealing the nutrients and the water that it needs so that it will not grow and bear the fruit that we need. And so we can spend our lives focused on careers, focused on how big our house is or how, what neighborhood we live in, how nice our car is, how big our retirement fund is going to be how exotic our vacations are going to be. We can focus on all of these things and so much more. But that's not what's going to matter. That's not what's going to endure. That's, those are things that are going to perish. They're not bad things. Many of them are very good. 
but they're not ultimate things. That's the issue. And they were seeking necessary things as if they were ultimate sort of things, to steal a phrase from Tim Keller. Okay. So, he encourages them to instead to seek the food that endures to eternal life. Now, he's not talking about Twinkies, which I've heard have enough preservatives to make them last about a couple hundred years. They could probably survive a nuclear blast and be okay. I had some McDonald's fries last night. He's not speaking about those. We've seen the experiments where people put McDonald's foods and watch how they don't rot. <laughs> okay? It's almost like food that endures to eternal life, but it's really not the food that endures to eternal life. It's the pink slime, I think, that has done this. Okay? He's not talking about these things. He says that this food that endures to eternal life, this food that does not spoil, this food that cannot be stolen, this food that will not perish, this food is given to them by, he says, the Son of Man. Why does he say the Son of Man? Probably because they thought he was Messiah and wanted to make him king. And so their understanding of Messiah or Christ was a little bit off, and so he doesn't want to give them the wrong idea. And so he brings up this, this title for himself that is originally found in Daniel and that he's used often in John's Gospel. Calling himself the Son of Man, we see that initially, where you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He's Jacob's ladder. We saw in, in last chapter, chapter 5, that he, the Son of Man has been entrusted with judgment from the Father. And so that's a very negative thing, and yet here it's a very positive thing. The Son of Man does this very positive thing as giving people this bread that endures to eternal life. And so the Son of Man not only judges the world, but gives eternal life. Why is it that we must seek Jesus? Why is it that we must seek Him for this gift? We see that Jesus follows this up by saying that the Father has set His seal on Him, the seal of His authenticity, the seal of his authority. Back then, when people didn't read, what often happened, you would know the decree from the king comes because there's a bunch of wax on it and the signet ring of the king is placed in the warm wax so that it, the, the seal is set into the wax. So you can, you can know whether or not this is really an edict of the king or if this is just something that someone else is saying the king said authenticity, and authority. And so Jesus is saying that the Father has placed his seal upon Jesus as he is the authentic one. He is the one who has authority. The authority to bestow eternal life. We think about this at times. If you want to go buy a new Honda, where's the only place you can go to buy a new Honda? authorized dealer. You can buy a used Honda anywhere you want, but if you want to buy a new Honda, you got to go to the Honda dealership. And they usually have those words somewhere on their sign or on their business card, authorized Honda dealership, meaning that the company, the car company Honda, has authorized them to sell their cars and to service their cars. Okay? You can't go to the Ford place and buy a new Honda. 
They have not been authorized by the owner to do that. Okay? You can try all you want, but all you're going to get is a used one. Okay? That's just the way it is. Jesus has been authorized. He is the only one who has the authority and who has the power to give eternal life. There is no one else that you can go to that will give you these things. This food that endures is not found at Fry's. It is not found at Walmart or Costco or anywhere else. There's only one place, and that is the Son of Man. And so we find something here that is very uncomfortable for most people in this world today, in our, particularly in our culture, that Jesus is a religious exclusivist. Jesus is not a religious pluralist or a religious relativist. And he knows. He is the one the Father sent. Not one of the ones the Father sent. He is the one the Father has stamped his approval on. He's not one of many the Father has stamped his approval on. One. And so if someone is seeking eternal life, there is only one place they can go, and that is to Jesus himself. We spend our lives working for food, but do we seek the wrong food? Secondly, the negative side of all of this, unbelief is never satisfied with the one the Father sent. Remember, Jesus says they have come to him seeking food for their bellies. My mind went to that old phrase that was uh, associated, actually, with Herbert Hoover's campaign, although he never said it. A chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Politics hasn't changed. <laughs> now, in, in that context, it was economic prosperity that means that you now have a chicken in your pot and a car in your garage. But today it has sort of been transformed into not your prosperity, but this is what the government's going to give you. It's different. But people vote on those ba that basis. What's in it for them? And Jesus is accusing them of this. Coming to me for what's in it for you, but you're seeking the wrong thing that's for you. They saw this sign, they experienced this sign, as I've already said, but they did not receive that which it pointed to. Earthly treasures are a stumbling block for many who seek Jesus for those earthly treasures. It's not just Jesus that talks about this. We see it. Deuteronomy 8. When we read from Exodus 16 earlier, we learned about the initial giving of the manna from heaven. And we notice there, uh, it may have happened too quickly, but it said, to test you, to see if you will walk in my ways or obey my commands. I'm not sure which of those phrases it used at this moment. But it says here in Deuteronomy 8, And he humbled you and let you hunger and, fe and feed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So even in the manna, there was this lesson that we do not live by food, 
or bread. But we live, we are sustained by words that come from the mouth of God. And they didn't learn that lesson very well. For we see in Numbers 11, they've been partaking of the manna for an extended period of time, and it says here in uh, verse, I think, 4, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. They wanted the ugly steaks, folks. I'm telling you right now. They heard about them. Okay. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. Well, you know, slavery. But what's that, right? The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And so they were now ungrateful for God's provision. They failed the test of the heart because of discontentment. Unbelief is ultimately not satisfied with the many earthly provisions God gives to his people. That's these people that are encountering Jesus, that are chasing Jesus. It's it's never going to be enough. Jesus can feed them every day the rest of their lives, and it will never be enough for them because of their unbelief. Churches need to remember that there are some people who will come seeking Jesus, and there are some people who will come seeking God only for material things, a better life. Certain churches are filled with that and are catering to that. But it happens everywhere. I listened briefly to uh, William Still's sermon on this passage um, while I was writing the, the, the sermon. And he talks about, this doesn't happen to me, he had a manse, which would be right next door to the church building. I don't have that. okay? But everyone, therefore, would know that's where the pastor lives because usually they have a, a sign that says manse. Uh, there's one of those when we go to New York... When we drive up Route 8 to go to uh, my father-in-law and mother-in-law's house, Methodist Mance is on the side of the road, and you know that's the house. And he says, people knock day and night, looking not for Jesus, but for handouts. It happens. There are people who come only because their bellies are empty, who think the church is only a charity. Now, the church should be filled with charity, and very generous. But that's not all it is. Okay? That distinction is very important. Let's not lose that distinction. So anyway, their response to what Jesus says is, what must we do? What works of God must we perform? They end up thinking that they can gain this bread that endures by their works, by their effort. And so we see that unbelief is also not satisfied with Christ's work for us, but as one song says, they fondly dream of earning it. The work of God, Jesus says, is to believe. To believe not just any old thing, but to believe specifically in the one the Father has sent. Again, that exclusivity 
that our, our world finds so hard to swallow. It's not me. It's Jesus who says these things. It's not the church they have a problem with. Ultimately, it's Jesus they have a problem with because he is the one who says these exclusive statements. They are to believe in the one the Father has sent. But they're not satisfied. They are to believe the one the Father has sent, the ambassador. Remembering that Jesus is proclaiming the authorized message which can be trusted, which is true. It's not just something that someone like me came up with. Okay? Some of you, I've, you, know, you know, we've talked politics. I've told some of you my crazy idea for reforming the election process. Okay? And that's all it is. It's a crazy idea. Because I don't have the authority to implement my ideas. And so they're just the rantings of an obscure preacher. That's all they are. If I were to head over to the Middle East and gain an audience with the leaders of ISIS and sit down and talk with them, my words would mean nothing in terms of foreign policy for the United States of America because I'm not authorized by the government of our nation to go and sit down with them and talk to them and bargain peace. I've not been sent by the president. I'm not the secretary of state. I'm not an ambassador. I'll probably get my head chopped off, but that's besides the point. <clears throat> but I don't have the authority to go and barter peace and make agreements. Okay? Jesus is the one authorized to do this, authorized to say this, to make this offer. Believe on the one the Father has sent, and you'll have this bread that endures into eternal life. The echoes of this. In Ephesians chapter 2, for instance. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, God is not going to be a debtor to anyone. I love Calvin's comment on this. Now faith brings nothing to God, but on the contrary, places man before God as empty and poor that he may be filled with Christ and with his grace. I love that. That's who I am. That's how I, I'm revealed to be on a, basically a daily basis as someone who is only empty and poor, unless you want to count the sin. But that Christ fills me with himself and with his grace. That's what happens. That's what true faith is, and that's what true faith receives. But unbelief is not satisfied with this. And again, they demand signs so that they may see and believe Christ. And so what they bring up is that, you know, the manna. And the implication that they're making is that the manna proved Moses was God's guy. And they had to listen to him and obey him. The manna was a sign that Moses was their redeemer. And so they're saying to him, show us the signs that will prove that you are this redeemer that you're speaking about. What have they just seen? 
Had they not heard in Jerusalem during the feast about the healing of the paralytic? Were they not the ones who sat there and ate the fish and the bread upon the hillside on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? They've already seen signs. Just points out that unbelief is never satisfied with the signs it already has. It always wants one more. And if you give it that, it wants yet another. Never satisfied. But always demanding more from God. Deuteronomy 8 again. What happens when we get full? Moses said this to them, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. So one evidence of forgetting God is flagrant disobedience. Lest when you have eaten and are full, okay, when you have eaten and are full, and you have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Now, God had promised to bring them into this great land that had lots of fertility and they would prosper. But he's warning them, when you prosper, then your heart be lifted up or made pride, prideful, arrogant. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so he warns them of the dangers of prosperity, that we have a tendency when we are full to forget him and our incredible need for him to be puffed up with arrogance and walk away. Deuteronomy 8 has Moses giving the warning. Hosea 13 has the mention that it's been fulfilled. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, but when they had grazed, they became full. And they were filled. And their heart was lifted up. Notice he's using the very same words to get this point to them. And therefore they forgot me. The warning of Deuteronomy 8 became real in the life of Israel and resulted in the exile. And so unbelief is never satisfied with Christ's authority, with his provision, with his satisfaction, or with his signs. Third and lastly, Believe upon him who came from heaven to give life. Jesus goes back to this. Truly, truly. Okay, Their words thus far in response to his words have indicated they're still not getting this. Truly, truly. Pay attention. Jesus rebukes them for forgetting God as though Moses was the one who could feed them heavenly bread. Moses was a mediator, but the bread was provided by God. And so Calvin notes that Jesus is sent by the Father in order that he may feed men in a manner far more excellent than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. 
The Father offers something greater than manna, which what happened if you kept manna more than a day, except on the Sabbath? It spoiled. It rotted. It perished. It all ties together. The Word of God does. So the heavenly bread, the true bread of heaven, is he who comes down from heaven. So Jesus is pointing to his heavenly origin in this statement. And what the Father sends to feed you, the food that endures into eternal eternal life, is actually Christ himself whom nothing can destroy, who shall not spoil, shall not fade, shall not perish. Christ himself is the bread that sustains us. And yet, Jesus said that he gives this bread. He gives himself to us. Astounding. He is the gift that continues to give that continues to give us the grace that we need to sustain us unto eternal life, precisely because He is the only dying and rising Savior. There is no other. The only one. But again, He says, He gives life to those who believe the Father sent Him to give it. All of this kind of pulls together. Now, they say they want this bread. Give us this bread, they say, all our days. There's a reason why I had Mike read John 4. Because they sound just like the woman at the well. Before the light bulb went on. Give me this water. Why? Because I don't want to keep coming to this well. She understood it as physical water, not the spirit. And so she just didn't want to keep trucking out to the well outside of the town and having to truck the water back. That gets old after a while. These guys, it's the same thing. Give us this food. Why? Because we're tired of growing crops. We're tired of fishing. We're tired of going to the store. We're tired of baking. It's all about their physical desire. It's not about a love for God. This gift, life, eternal life, not just to the Jews, but he says to the world. So this idea, not every single individual, but the recognition that the the wideness of God's mercy encompasses the Gentiles. It's not just limited to Jews, to literal bloodline sons of Abraham but that all who believe in Christ are made by adoption sons of Abraham, as Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3. For the world, it's a wide mercy that is found here, and yet these are ones who are resisting mercy with their unbelief. They want this bread, just like the woman at the well, because they want the earthly benefits, not the eternal benefits. And so 
as, as we think about this, I, I want us to consider what you seek Christ for. Do you seek him for eternal life or simply a better earthly life? Now, you can seek him for a better earthly life and still seek him for eternal life. But it's a question of what is, what's the main drumbeat in your life. When your life stinks, it's not, okay, it's not wrong to ask him to help you and to fix their circumstances. But if all it is is your circumstances, something ain't right. You're like these guys, seeking Jesus for a full belly, not seeking Jesus for eternal life. And because the gospel you believe or live is the gospel that you give, there's a second thing to consider. Consider what you offer to those who don't believe. Are you offering them Christ and life? Or are you offering them Christ for a better life? The practical benefits, simply, of life. Well, let's go back to Wes Welker for a second here. He's sacrificing his health, his future, because now he's married. He might have kids. Their future. For a game that he loves, which will soon perish. Can money or glory make up for depression, headaches, memory loss, rage? We all work for something, but are we doing the one work for the best thing? The best thing is eternal life, which the Father gives through Christ as a gift received only by faith. And so the gospel we believe, or in the gospel that we live, is the one that we will give to other people. Is this gospel the one Jesus preaches about the one who, ah, my own words don't even, are we, are we offering Christ who calls for us to believe in him as the bread from heaven who gives eternal life or a different kind of Jesus altogether? Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus that often cut through all the excuses that we may have put up, that we might still put up, that those we might interact with who don't yet believe put up. Help us to remember these words. Help us to remember the real core issue so that when we talk to people about him, we're not sidetracked and going down blind alleys, but they're always kind of going back to the fact of Jesus, the only dying, rising Savior, the only one who can give eternal life, the only one in whom we must believe. Help us to see the ways in which our faith is still impure, still mixed that we might cry out for you to continue to purify us 
We ask this in Christ's name, amen.